Hello and welcome to the Lazy Book Club podcast, the book club for those who don't want to read or leave the house. My name is Matt Gonzalez. Woo! It's David Cox. And I'm Josh Matheson. And this week we are looking at chapter six of Animal Farm. Now, I mean, the cow pat really is hitting the fan now, mm-hmm. particularly last week when Napoleon has forced Snowball off the farm with his nine attack puppies and has wrestled the power of the farm to himself now. So I have a feeling that over the next kind of four chapters, five chapters, we're going to probably start to see a dictatorship flourish. (laughs) That's a nice way to put it. Oh, yeah. Did you know Napoleon's the hero of the piece? Didn't you know you root for him? It's like it's about him. You're rooting for him to to achieve world domination. It would actually be quite funny if if you did have read it with that mindset, whether you'd actually like Napoleon at the end or not. It's true. Very true. Yeah. <laughs> I also think, like, from an acting point of view, obviously we all have a performative background. Mm. Um, if you're playing a character like this, you have to be able to. Uh, you, you you can't go in and just go. I've got. I'm playing a horrible character. I judge them. They're horrible. They're terrible. You have to be able to find a way of like empathizing with your own. Well, yeah, you. Need so to... I was just like, if you were to, if we, if one of us were to take on the role of one of these pigs, mm. you know, how how are you going to find the justification, the motivation to say, yeah, no, I totally. Yeah, you like you know you like yourself as the as a character. You have to. Yeah. yeah. Well, you need to find the motivation, though, don't you? You have to kind of find what what is it that drives him. What is it that he is hoping to achieve. Is it the case that he's hoping to achieve power for power's sake? Or is it actually the case that he deep down believes that he has the best intentions for Animal Farm at heart and that under his leadership it will flourish? I don't know. Like, whether that's true or not, do you know what I mean? It could be a delusion of grandeur. But at the end of the day, like, as as an actor or as the character, you're probably more likely to approach it from that point of view than just, I really want to be bad. How can I be as bad as possible? Hands over, that's really funny. like... "Mm." Boys and girls, I'm going to kill my nemesis. (laughs) And the farm will be mine, mine, all mine! (laughs) That sounds like such a low bar. The farm will be mine. (laughs) Why didn't we give him that voice? I'm definitely keeping that in the bank for the next time. The next villain. Yeah. (laughs) Shall we dive in then and see what Napoleon's got up his sleeves? Chapter 6 All that year the animals worked like slaves. But they were happy in their work. They grudged no effort or sacrifice, well aware that everything that they did was for the benefit of themselves and those of their kind who would come after them, and not for a pack of idle, thieving human beings. Throughout the spring and summer, they worked a 60-hour week, and in August, Napoleon announced that there would be work on Sunday afternoons as well. This work was strictly voluntary, but any animal who absented himself from it would have his rations reduced by half. <laughs> yeah, so it's not voluntary, voluntary at work, all, but we dock your pay if you don't do it. Yeah, that <laughs> like, sounds that's fair. not voluntary. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Also, 60-hour week in the height of summer. That sounds like the worst thing in the world. Mm. Yeah, it really, really does. 
I've tried. I've tried to work five-hour days in the height of summer, and I can't manage it. Yeah. You totally. You know. You totally appreciate why the Spanish have. A and theater. they're actually working outside. They're not working from home or doing yeah. like. They're not farming on Zoom. They're baking. <laughs> farming on Zoom. How might that look? Even so, it was found necessary to leave certain tasks undone. The harvest was a little less successful than in the previous year and two fields which should have been sown with roots in the early summer were not sown because the ploughing had not been completed early enough. It was possible to foresee that the coming winter would be a hard one. The windmill presented unexpected difficulties. There was a good quarry of limestone on the farm, and plenty of sand and cement had been found in one of the outhouses, so that all the materials for the building were at hand. But the problem the animals could not at first solve was how to break up the stone into pieces of suitable size. There seemed no way of doing this, except with picks and crowbars, which no animal could use, because no animal could stand on his hind legs. Only after weeks of vain effort did the right idea occur to somebody, namely, to utilise the force of gravity. Huge boulders, far too big to be used as they were, were lying all over the bed of the quarry. The animals lashed ropes round these, and then altogether, cows, horses, sheep, any animal that could lay hold of the rope, even the pigs sometimes joined in at critical moments, they dragged them with desperate slowness up the slope to the top of the quarry, where they were toppled over the edge to shatter to pieces below. I know obviously it has to be on top of a hill because it's a windmill and it makes sense, but you would begrudge having to build it on top of a hill, wouldn't you, if you were having you to really push would. the stone up? I'm amazed that they didn't, like, there must not be a stream or something because surely a water wheel would be so much easier to build. Yeah, I did, they haven't mentioned a water source. No, but do you know what I mean? If you had, like, a stream, like a fast-moving stream, that would be so much easier to power your generators. Yeah. Or... They would need to build a viaduct from one that's nearby. So yeah. I, might suggest, I might suggest it to them. Yeah, it's good. The animals aren't being, aren't being sort of productive enough with their infrastructure. No. <laughs> Guys, sort it out. Why haven't enough of these sheep got BAs in engineering? That's what I want to know. <laughs> you're, not, you're not doing enough for me, like, even though you're already doing lots of sort of freakishly people stuff. Mm. Um, yeah, motorway. Next. <laughs> Transporting the stone once it was broken was comparatively simple. The horses carried it off in cartloads. The sheep dragged single blocks. Even Muriel and Benjamin yoked themselves into an old governess cart and did their share. By late summer, a sufficient store of stone had accumulated, and then the building began under the superintendence of the pigs. But it was a slow, laborious process. Frequently it took a whole day of exhausting effort to drag a single boulder to the top of the quarry, and sometimes when it was pushed over the edge it failed to break. Nothing could have been achieved without Boxer, whose strength seemed equal to that of all the rest of the animals put together. When the boulder began to slip, and the animals cried out in despair at finding themselves dragged down the hill, it was always Boxer who strained himself against the rope and brought the boulder to a stop. To see him toiling up the slope, inch by inch, his breath coming fast, the tips of his hooves clawing at the ground, and his great sides matted with sweat, filled everyone with admiration. Clover warned him sometimes to be careful not to overstrain himself, 
but Boxer would never listen to her. His two slogans, I will work harder, and Napoleon is always right, seemed to him a sufficient answer to all problems. He had made arrangements with the cockerel to call him three quarters of an hour earlier in the mornings instead of half an hour, and in his spare moments, of which there were not many nowadays, he would go alone to the quarry, collect a load of broken stone, and drag it down to the site of the windmill unassisted. The animals were not badly off throughout that summer, in spite of the hardness of their work. If they had no more food than they had had in Jones' day, at least they did not have less. The advantage of only having to feed themselves and not having to support five extravagant human beings as well was so great that it would have taken a lot of failures to outweigh it. And in many ways the animal method of doing things was more efficient and saved labour. Such jobs as weeding, for instance, could be done with a thoroughness impossible to human beings. And again, since no animal now stole, it was unnecessary to fence off pasture from arable land, which saved a lot of labour on the upkeep of hedges and gates. Nevertheless, as the summer wore on, various unforeseen shortages began to make themselves felt. There was need of paraffin oil, nails, string dog biscuits and iron for the horse's shoes, <laughs> none of which could be produced on the farm. I love the idea of the dogs being like, I haven't had a treat in three stinking days. <laughs> I've been a good boy. <laughs> Just looking at the sheep. What about him? He's fresh. What about their legs? They don't need those. They don't need those. <laughs> Look at those feet back on the menu, boys. <laughs> That's going to be the voice for the dogs if they speak. <laughs> the um, orcs, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I was wondering how the dogs are staying kind of fit and healthy because oats and barley and hay aren't going to keep them healthy. Are the dogs the only meat eaters? The dogs and the cat are the only meat eaters on the farm, yeah. are they? But then the cat probably hunts mice and rats that kind of don't. That's although true. they count as comrades, no one's probably keeping an eye on her. She probably goes over to the other farm and nicks cream <laughs> and other things anyway, you knowing her. Props. Yeah. Hangs out by the kitchen door at the pub. Later, there would also be need for seeds and artificial manures, besides various tools, and finally, the machinery for the windmill. How these were to be procured, no one was able to imagine. One Sunday morning, when the animals assembled to receive their orders, Napoleon announced that he had decided upon a new policy. From now onwards, Animal Farm would engage in trade with the neighbouring farms. Not, of course, for any commercial purpose, but simply in order to obtain certain materials which were urgently necessary. The needs of the windmill must override everything else, he said. He was therefore making arrangements to sell a stack of hay and part of the current year's wheat crop, and later on, if more money were needed, it would have to be made up by the sale of eggs, for which there was always a market in Willingdon. The hens, Napoleon said, should welcome this sacrifice as their own special contribution towards the building of the windmill. Once again, the animals were conscious of a vague uneasiness. Never to have any dealings with human beings, never to engage in trade, never to make use of money. Had not these been among the earliest resolutions passed at that triumphant first meeting after Jones was expelled? 
All the animals remembered passing such resolutions, or at least they thought they had remembered it. The four young pigs who had protested when Napoleon abolished the meetings raised their voices timidly, but they were promptly silenced by a tremendous growling from the dogs. Then, as usual, the sheep broke into four legs good, two legs bad, and the momentary awkwardness was smoothed over. Finally, Napoleon raised his trotter for silence and announced that he had already made all the arrangements. There would be no need for any of the animals to come in contact with human beings, which would clearly be most undesirable. He intended to take the whole burden upon his own shoulders. A Mr. Wimper, a solicitor living in Willingdon, had agreed to act as intermediary between Animal Farm and the outside world, and would visit the farm every Monday morning to receive his instructions. Napoleon ended his speech with his usual cry of Long live animal farm! And after singing Beasts of England, the animals were dismissed. Afterwards, Squealer made a round of the farm and set the animals' minds at rest. He assured them that the resolution against engaging in trade and using money had never been passed or even suggested. It was pure imagination, probably traceable in the beginning to lies circulated by Snowball. A few animals still felt faintly doubtful, but Squealer asked them shrewdly, Are you certain that this is not something that you have dreamed, comrades? Have you any record of such a resolution? Is it written down anywhere? And since it was certainly true that nothing of the kind existed in writing, the animals were satisfied that they had been mistaken. I do love the idea of the voice of propaganda being Kermit the Frog. It's just (laughs) so good. It was a special choice on your part. It sounds all innocent and like it's actually quite good in the sense that yeah, you, you totally trust anything Kermit says. says. Yeah, you do. Kermit is the voice of reason on the Muppets. It's very, very much so. So very actually, we, so. although it's ridiculous, um, it's kind of perfect. I mean, I think if the government put Kermit on sort of posters around London saying things that they wanted us to do, and I'd probably... Space, pro- space. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they've got would... Matt Hancock and he's pretty much a Muppet, isn't he? <laughs> just look yeah, at him yeah he looks like he's hand, like a hand stuffed up his ass mate the other day when the shadow health minister was taking him to task he looked like he was going to cry <laughs> yeah he does look like the sort of kid that's just trying to get his own back on all his bullies he just looks soggy you know when you just see a man it's just like you've got there's just <laughs> nothing like there's just no backbone to you at all you were just soggy a bit of hovis that's just been left yeah, in the road yeah a biscuit that's been in a tea for too long it's just like just like you're going to fall apart, man. And a seagull walks past the wet bread and goes, actually, no. No, exactly. <laughs> I'll not bother. Every Monday, Mr. Wimper visited the farm as had been arranged. He was a sly-looking little man with side whiskers, a solicitor in a very small way of business, but sharp enough to have realised earlier than anyone else that Animal Farm would need a broker and that the commissions would be worth having. The animals watched his coming and going with a kind of dread and avoided him as much as possible. Nevertheless, the sight of Napoleon on all fours delivering orders to Wimper, who stood on two legs, roused their pride and partly reconciled them to the new arrangement. I don't know why I'm just imagining two people. Like, could you imagine a statesman welcoming another statesman but on all fours? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> it is custom. Yeah. <laughs> Like the ambassador. I'm imagining really. like actual Stalin rather than Napoleon. Like just on a foot. really tickled me. The key is keeping your lumbar very straight. Otherwise, you can't get back. But... You must do kit, then cow. Kit, cow. <laughs> Their relations with the human race were now not quite the same as they had been before. The human beings did not hate Animal Farm any less now that it was prospering. Indeed, they hated it more than ever. Every human being held it as an article of faith that the farm would go bankrupt sooner or later, and above all, that the windmill would be a failure. They would meet in the public houses and prove to one another by means of diagrams that the windmill was bound to fall down, or that if it did stand up, then that it would never work. And yet, against their will, they had developed a certain respect for the efficiency with which the animals were managing their own affairs. One symptom of this was that they had begun to call Animal Farm by its proper name, and ceased to pretend that it was called the Manor Farm. They had also dropped their championship of Jones, who had given up hope of getting his farm back, and gone to live in another part of the country. Except through Whimper, There was as yet no contact between Animal Farm and the outside world, but there were constant rumours that Napoleon was about to enter into a definite business arrangement, either with Mr Pilkington of Foxwood or with Mr Frederick of Pinchfield, but never, it was noticed, with both simultaneously. It was about this time that the pigs suddenly moved into the farmhouse and took up residence there. Uh oh. They're in the house. They gotta done human in stuff. The house. Because that is outrightly one of the seven commandments. Legit one of the things, yeah. Do you know what it's gonna look like to all the other animals? It's gonna be like the scene in Home Alone when all the lights are on and he's doing all the mannequins. There's <laughs> <laughs> one going around on like a skeletric. <laughs> and then there's there's just like there's just Macaulay Cock with strings with pigs trotters on them going up and down. That's what it's going to look like. Again, the animals seemed to remember that a resolution against this had been passed in the early days, and again Squealer was able to convince them that this was not the case. It was absolutely necessary, he said, that the pigs, who were the brains of the farm, should have a quiet place to work in. It was also more suited to the dignity of the leader, for of late he had taken to speaking of Napoleon under the title of leader, to live in a house than a mere sty. Nevertheless, some of the animals were disturbed when they heard that the pigs not only took their meals in the kitchen and used the drawing room as a recreation room, but also slept in beds. Boxer passed it off as usual with, Napoleon is always right. But Clover, who thought she remembered a definite ruling against beds, went to the end of the barn and tried to puzzle out the seven commandments which were inscribed there. Finding herself unable to read more than individual letters, she fetched Muriel. Muriel, she said, read me the fourth commandment. Does it not say something about never sleeping in a bed? With some difficulty, Muriel spelt it out. Uh, Muriel hasn't spoken yet. No, she hasn't. We haven't got a voice from Muriel. Have you ever seen Muriel's Wedding? It's an Australian film. I very much haven't. Uh, Oh, you make her Aussie. Yeah, Yeah, we've not had an Aussie before. It says no animal shall sleep in bed with sheets. 
neighbor. <laughs> Everybody needs good neighbors. Yeah. She announced finally. Curiously enough, Clover had not remembered that the fourth commandment mentioned sheets. But as it was there on the wall, it must have done so. And Squealer, who happened to be passing at this moment, attended by two or three dogs, was able to put the whole matter into its proper perspective. You have heard then, comrades, he said, that we pigs now sleep in the beds of the farmhouse. And why not? You did not suppose, surely, that there was ever a ruling against beds. A bed merely means a place to sleep in. A pile of straw in a stall is a bed, properly regarded. The rule was against sheets, which are a human invention. We have removed the sheets from the farmhouse beds and sleep between blankets. And very comfortable beds they are too. But not more comfortable than we need, I can tell you, comrades. With all the brain work we have to do nowadays... You would not rob us of our repose, would you, comrades? You would not have us too tired to carry out our duties. <laughs> Sorry, just stopped to laugh at d- d- duties. Surely none of you wishes to see Jones back. He's like a broken record, this guy. He, he always he enters says. that. Every single yeah, he time. Hideous. It's like the ultimate threat. Mm-hmm. Jones might come back. This is better than being shot. <laughs> is essentially what he's trying to say. Yep. The animals reassured him on this point immediately, and no more was said about the pigs sleeping in the farmhouse beds. And when, some days afterwards, it was announced that from then on, the pigs would get up an hour later in the mornings than the other animals, no complaint was made about that either. By the autumn, the animals were tired but happy. They had had a hard year, and after the sale of part of the hay and corn, the stores of food for the winter were none too plentiful. But the windmill compensated for everything. It was almost half-built now. After the harvest, there was a stretch of clear dry weather, and the animals toiled harder than ever, thinking it was well worthwhile to plod to and fro all day with blocks of stone, if by doing so they could raise the walls another foot. Boxer would even come out at nights and work for an hour or two on his own by the light of the harvest moon, In their spare moments, the animals would walk round and round the half-finished mill, admiring the strength and perpendicularity of its walls, and marvelling that they should ever have been able to build anything so imposing. Only old Benjamin refused to grow enthusiastic about the windmill, though. As usual, he would utter nothing beyond the cryptic remark that donkeys live a long time. November came, with raging southwest winds, Building had to stop because it was now too wet to mix the cement. Finally, there came a night when the gale was so violent that the farm buildings rocked on their foundations and several tiles were blown off the roof of the barn. The hens woke up squawking with terror because they had all dreamed simultaneously of hearing a gun go off in the distance. In the morning, the animals came out of their stalls to find that the flagstaff had been blown down and an elm tree at the foot of the orchard had been plucked up like a radish. They had just noticed this when a cry of despair broke from every animal's throat. A terrible sight had met their eyes. The windmill was in ruins. 
With one accord, they dashed down to the spot. Napoleon, who seldom moved out of a walk, raced ahead of them all. Yes, there it lay, the fruit of all their struggles, levelled to its foundations. The stones they had broken and carried so laboriously scattered all around. Unable at first to speak, they stood gazing mournfully at the litter of fallen stone. Napoleon paced to and fro in silence, occasionally snuffing at the ground. His tail had grown rigid and twitched sharply from side to side, a sign in him of intense mental activity. Suddenly he halted, as though his mind were made up. Comrades, he said quietly, do you know who is responsible for this? Do you know the enemy who has come in the night and overthrown our windmill? Snowball! He suddenly roared in a voice of thunder. Snowball has done this thing in sheer malignity, thinking to set back our plans and avenge himself for his ignominious expulsion. This traitor has crept here under the cover of night and destroyed our work of nearly a year. Comrades, here and now I pronounce the death sentence upon Snowball. Animal hero, second class, and half a bushel of apples to any animal who brings him to justice. A full bushel to anyone who captures him alive. The animals were shocked beyond measure to learn that even Snowball could be guilty of such an action. There was a cry of indignation, and everyone began thinking out ways of catching Snowball if he should ever come back. Almost immediately... The footprints of a pig were discovered in the grass at a little distance from the knoll. They could only be traced for a few yards, but appeared to lead to a hole in the hedge. Napoleon snuffed deeply at them and pronounced them to be snowballs. He gave it as his opinion that snowball had probably come from the direction of Foxwood Farm. No more delays, comrades, cried Napoleon when the footprints had been examined. There is work to be done. This very morning we begin rebuilding the windmill and we will build all through the winter, rain or shine. We will teach this miserable traitor that he cannot undo our work so easily. Remember, comrades, there must be no alteration in our plans. They shall be carried out to the day. Forward, comrades, long live the windmill. Long live Animal Farm! End of chapter. I mean, I'm kind of glad that we didn't lose any more characters. We lost two in the last chapter. And I was kind of thinking that this was the start of Napoleon going on his killing spree. So I'm kind of quite happy, even though the pigs are starting to, again, play the system for their own advantage. They're pigs in blankets today, aren't they? <laughs> Pigs without blankets. That would be such a good chapter. <laughs> Pigs without blankets. Pigs that don't give a shit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, brilliant! I mean, at least at least the animals are questioning. Unfortunately, they they don't follow through. But at least like Clover's like going, hang on, I'm pretty sure there's a law against that. And oh, hang on, I'm pretty sure we, we're we not meant to be trading with humans. And you kind of, 
go, yeah, yeah, follow that, follow that, hold them to account, and then they unfortunately fall apart due to either memory or feeling intellectually inadequate compared to the pigs or whatever, or just intimidated by the dogs. Well, it was interesting when it... um... Was it was it Clover or Muriel where they said she couldn't quite read it? And I was like, it's interesting. Is there is there a sort of culture that pigs are trying to create of educating to a point, but obviously keeping them suppressed by not educating too much? Certainly way below their own. Well, it's weird they're because not, they're, not, they're not having like education programs. They're not going like, oh, we're going to have courses after work. Well, yeah, I have a feeling that because the education stuff was more snowballs passion rather than napoleons that that probably has stopped since but muriel i I remember it saying earlier that she could read very well because she used to read the newspapers so i'm not quite sure maybe that's indicative of the fact that maybe she hasn't been reading and maybe that's why she struggled yeah yeah. maybe because she's been working so hard in terms of building the windmill and doing the harvest, that she's not had time to read and educate herself anymore. And so those skills have deteriorated, maybe. Well, that's what you were saying, Matt, a couple of weeks ago, um, about a sort of a tactic of, 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 the, of government. Oh, keeping keep the working, working classes cl- busy, because then they can't them busy, do anything. Yeah. Yeah. And the same is true. They can't, if, if, they, if they can't educate themselves, they can't stay sort of politically sharp and therefore nope. haven't got an argument to make. Mm-hmm. It's the elephant in the room, I have a theory. And There's I... no elephants, David, <laughs> it's not that kind of farm. <laughs> they would have done the stuff quicker, wouldn't they? Yeah, it's true. Um, could it be, um, and this I generally don't remember from reading the book, so I'm not going, oh, could it be? And I'm going to do a plot spoiler. Could it be that Napoleon is actually behind destroying the windmill because it keeps them working long hours. Well, that was my first thought. I was actually going to start because we're looking at lit charts for this. You guys have actually jumped to the last section, but we may as well read it while we're here since you've brought that up. Basically, what it says here is, blaming the windmill's destruction on Snowball is a smart move for Napoleon as it means that nobody is going to blame him for the shoddy planning and not having a plan B. Further, he is able to use this deflection to unite the animals against Snowball as a common enemy and in doing so comes up with a way to convince the animals to work even harder in support of the state. So the windmill actually fell down just because it wasn't planned out very well and the storm just destroyed it. So it wasn't actually destroyed intentionally, but it just shows how good a manipulator Napoleon is that he is able to use even something that should be a negative to his advantage. He has managed to turn this around in like, I'm going to blame somebody else, deflect the blame on somebody else, and then use this as an as a motivation for everybody to work harder. And I'm not being funny, we have seen leaders very recently doing that. Oh no, that's not me, it's them, we're going to fight them, let's go and fight. You know, it's like... It's and been... so quick, and he's so quick to that decision as well. He's so, no, 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 no. It was because of the terrorist attack, and now we're gonna go, we're gonna go and invade there. Yeah. And, and then no, it was because of that. Gonna gonna manipulate to use our own gains yep. or grains in this case. <laughs> but that's that's the thing. So it, it does seem to just be a planning thing. And this is actually something I was gonna link to this paragraph where they talk about the fact that the farm starts to see itself falling like running out of things 
the problem with an isolated state, the novel shows, is that it's impossible to create everything the state needs. Thus, it will at some point become necessary to trade with others. Remember, however, that trading with neighbouring farms would technically be forbidden by Old Major, as he made it very clear that the animals shouldn't have common interests with humans and trading with them qualifies as such. This shows then how those ideals are consistently being corrupted as the needs of the state evolve. So you can see here that like the state, we, we, we said this all the way back in chapter one, that when Molly was like, will there be sugar after the revolution? It's like, no, there won't be because the farm isn't able to create sugar. That's something that would have to be bought in. And it kind of shows the failing of or the shortcomings of this kind of government arrangement, because a, a country can't create everything it needs. It needs to be able to trade. It needs to be able to get things in that it doesn't. It doesn't have as natural resources. So it's always been a limited thing, and that's why China, for instance, even though it's communist in name in terms of the party structure, uh, is a capitalist nation and so therefore not actually a communist nation because it worked out very quickly that it needs to be able to trade and it needs to be able to make money and actually that's how it's become quite dominant because it was like we have a very large population who need jobs but we can't afford through state infrastructure or state industry to employ all those people so what we're going to do I know we'll build factories and then we'll rent those factories or or you know take customers from outside and do manufacturing from cu from customers outside in order to make sure that our populace is employed. So you can see that it, it, they realise very quickly we can't be isolationist. We need to be able to open our borders to trade and to, and to money and to goods and stuff to come in. And then this links to the last point because with the USSR, what you found is, is that they were very good at mobilizing their population in state industry to build things. They, they built loads of stuff in the USSR. The problem is, is it was all crap. It was it was badly yeah, planned. It was badly made. It was made yeah. by people who weren't experts. So they'd make all this stuff, and it would just end up on a scrap heap. But the reason why they were making it was to employ their populace, so that their populace were being employed and paid to make things for themselves. And that's exactly what Orwell says here. The animals have worked harder than ever, but they're happy because they're working for themselves rather than working for humans. So this is what happened in the USR. The populace worked harder and harder than ever on all these state projects that the Communist Party had. But they were building rubbish, which actually just ended up bankrupting the state and then ending up with loads of stuff that was useless. And because they didn't trade, they couldn't sell it on to anybody else. But then they couldn't use it within the state anyway. So it just rotted. So it kind of shows the inefficiency of this kind of system when it's organized like this. And this is one of the things you have to say for capitalism is that while it has its shortcomings in terms of exploitation, it is very efficient. If you are not streamlined as a business, if you are not profit driven as a business, you do not survive. You close very quickly. You cannot afford to build stuff that doesn't get sold, doesn't get used and just sits on a scrap heap. You just can't.
The last bit we just have to look at is about Mr. Wimper. So the fact that Mr. Wimper wants to work for Napoleon and Animal Farm in the first place speaks to how much there is to gain by trading with a state like Animal Farm. He doesn't have to agree with any of its ideology in order to make a buck. By offering Mr. Wimper as a character, Orwell is able to critique the capitalist countries and individuals who got rich working with the USSR while ignoring the humanitarian atrocities. So, I mean, we see that today with China, like everybody uses China for their manufacturing and their trade and yet completely overlooks all of the atrocities that happen there. And even to the point where obviously in World War Two, we allied with Russia. And so it's like you've got France, Britain, America, like, you know, social democracies allying with a totalitarian communist regime to squash fascism (laughs) it's just like (laughs) which essentially is a dictatorship but just on the other end of the spectrum so it's almost a bit kind of cyclical really isn't it because in terms of the reality of how these governments work in practice i.e the use of violence the police single party dictator at the top you know, loyalty and patronage are what drive the state forward. That's Those are all tropes of both communism and fascism, even though they're at either end of the political spectrum. So it's just quite funny that they kind of allied with one totalitarian state in order to squash another one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it kind of shows you that, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, I suppose, really is how it, Fall down. As, long as, as soon suits, as that was, as long as it suits your needs, yeah. Well, because as soon as Germany was eliminated from the picture, then then came the Iron Curtain speech and and all the rest of it. So it's kind of Orwell kind of trying to highlight here that you can denounce the morality of the communist state in terms of how it behaves, but then what does it say about us who are willing to overlook those things for our own personal gain? Is that not as morally bankrupt as the state itself what what does that say about you as a country if you're willing to sell arms to kind of countries you know are using it to suppress their own population like that's that that reflects very badly on you yeah there's definitely a link there between like um extreme capitalism and just a lack of 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 morals or, or or selflessness or awareness or yeah i think that's one of the main things that i really struggle with when it comes to free markets i think that people believe that free markets have some kind of moral compass and they really don't Mm. people are like you know free markets govern themselves and it's like no they actually need society and they need the state to to drive them or to steer them in terms of morality because otherwise you would just always go for the cheapest option no matter the human cost the cheapest option no matter the environmental cost yeah, for the sure. cheapest option no matter what and so it's like they don't have a moral agenda their gender is always profit and it's always the bottom line so and the problem is is with people is is that as much as there are individuals out there who go no I don't buy from that company because of this because of that but also it boils down to like well if it's convenient then I'm going to sign up for it <laughs> unfortunately yeah but anyway if you have any thoughts or opinions on this chapter you can message us on the lazy book club at gmail.com 
or if you have any more salient points about any of the action, you can do it on Twitter. Our handle is at LazyBookClubPod. And it's exactly the same on Instagram as well, at LazyBookClubPod. It's also the same handle that you'll find on Patreon, where if you subscribe and you decide to support the show, then you get an extra episode a month. We are currently reading The Grim Tales. So you'll get an extra little dose. Extra. Extra. Dose of nonsense for your buck. So I hope you guys enjoy those extra stories that will be coming to you every month as well. We'll add some more benefits down the line, but as we're still getting to grips with Patreon and how it works, we're going to start with benefits. (laughs) Pods of benefits. So we will see you next week for Chapter 7. We'll see you then. Bye. Bye. Bye.